0: Jeff Simon. Good evening everyone and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a special show for you this evening. Rory Kennedy is here, director of Downfall, the case against Boeing. Before we get started, a few notes. As always, I want to point out that on socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps, we are currently running our Fly to Win Challenge with one of our biggest prizes ever. Just fly, get the app, go fly, check in at any airport. And right now, we are giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument that has a nearly $6,000 value. Be sure to check that out. All you need to do is fly and support general aviation in the process. Now, to introduce our next guest, I'd like to to start with a couple of pieces of information because it it is she is absolutely fascinating. For nearly 25 years, Rory Kennedy has been producing and directing thought provoking documentaries that challenge viewers to expand their worldviews and help to build a better future. As the daughter of Robert Kennedy and niece of John F. Kennedy, Rory comes from a family culture dedicated to social consciousness and action to improve our global community. Her films have brought audiences into the struggles of rural America, tackled the crisis of substance abuse and addiction, and presented an astoundingly personal accounting of the last days of the Vietnam War. Her work has also been inspirational, including her 2018 film, Above and Beyond, NASA's Journey to Tomorrow. Her films have also won numerous awards and honors, earning Rory membership in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. In her most recent documentary, Downfall, the case against Boeing, she sheds light on the tragic story of the Boeing 737 MAX and the corporate environment that ultimately cost the lives of 246 people. Downfall has been a landmark success, landing it in the top 10 films of any kind on Netflix. Please help me welcome as I bring her here onto Social Flight Live, Rory Kennedy.
1: Nice to be here with you, Jeff. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live and and a very sincere thank you for all of the work that you do. Um, I am on a, a tear through all of uh, your kind of binge watching uh, all of your earlier documentaries and uh, every one is really just another uh, look in, into just a different aspect of society around the world and, and they're really amazing.
1: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate that.
0: So I'd like to start with a little background uh, on you to help viewers understand this because uh, your film history and being uh, motivated to, to dedicate your life to telling these stories and to having this social consciousness, I believe goes back into the 1990s. And, and I'd like viewers to understand kind of where you're coming from and what your background is that brought you into filmmaking as your medium and then also that kind of brings you to where we are today to talk about this film.
1: Yeah, well, I I actually just happened into uh, making documentaries. I had never taken a film class in in college, um, but I was compelled to make a documentary coming out of college. I had uh, done a, a final paper, the university, about women and substance abuse and the difficulties that pregnant women had getting drug and alcohol treatment. And at that time, they were incarcerating many pregnant women for delivering drugs to a minor through the umbilical cord or child abuse and neglect. And what I found was that that many of these women didn't have any resources, didn't have any treatment programs to go to, that they were denied care over and over again. And so we were creating these policies that was criminalizing these women But we weren't giving them really any options to do anything and to take healthier steps. So I felt when I talked to these women, I just felt like their stories were so compelling and people weren't seeing that side. I wasn't reading about it in any article and I felt like the legislators didn't know it. And I thought, well, I can't bring, you know, their stories to every legislator, but I could bring a camera into the living rooms and document what was happening and and bring a film to these legislators and policymakers. So I made my first film, which was called Women of Substance. Um, It was broadcast on PBS stations. I did get to show it to members of Congress and I Um, and I just love the process. I love meeting the women. I love making the film. I love telling the story. I love seeing the film out in the world and having the impact that it did and the reach. And I have been doing it ever since.
0: Wow. It, 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 it's funny. It puts this smile on my face as, as a medium to get a message through. I mean, it does seem like there's this tie-in to, to your entire family history because that, that 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 really tied directly into uh, your your uncle John Kennedy's you know his grasp of that medium and having changed through uh, using both you know film and television and things like that and so did some of that inspire you along the way
1: um well I think that I think that at least in in my direct family lineage my parents Robert and Ethel Kennedy my Siblings, of which I have many, I'm the youngest of eleven. That storytelling was a a pretty significant part of my childhood, Um, and so I think that I and and it it probably stems from Irish heritage as well. Um, So I think that that kind of trickled trickled into my uh, brain formation, Um, and I think it was a combination of that and then wanting to have impact and reach. And it was sort of at a time where there, you know CNN and cable was just sort of starting to take off, and it seemed like there were opportunities to tell stories and and to reach audience audiences at a large scale. Um, so I did all, a lot of my early work was with HBO. Um, who was you know they were fantastic and, and really wonderful to work with and you know of course in the last 10 years we've had the streamers and um, all sorts of opportunities other opportunities present themselves as well so you know it's been a really exciting time to be doing the work that that I've been doing um, you know it was when I started there were much smaller budgets and you know a lot less demand and and um, and you know opportunities and now they've expanded exponentially
0: yeah well and and of course our audience being so focused on aviation and space and that whole part of the world um when you you evolved to the the, to tackling the subject and moving to the very inspirational film with nasa that that also struck a chord with me and i loved watching that film can you tell me a little bit about that transition because that's interesting because to me it blended uh the concept of this celebration of the air and space and all the accomplishments of nasa with this theme and this undertone of what it means to our world and again kind of getting back to social consciousness and and things that can better us and protect us in the future
1: yeah, I was asked to make that film by the Discovery Channel. It was the 60th anniversary of NASA, and it was really um, their their assignment for me was to look back and celebrate all of the you know many accomplishments of NASA over the last 60 years. Um, while I was making the film and talking to you know astronauts, scientists, ex- really accomplished, extraordinary people at NASA, I said, you know, what do you think is, to each of them, what do you think is the most important message here right now for for NASA? And and what's the most important thing that you all are doing and have done over these many years? And, you know, there was a consensus that what NASA has done in its its expansion of understanding ourselves and in our universe and beyond, that even though it's outward facing, that ultimately it's really helped us understand our own world. And what each of them said um, was that, you know, our world is facing jeopardy because of climate change. And that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, And that we really needed to change the way that we move through the world. Um, if we're going to preserve this planet for human life. So, you know, that felt quite urgent and and time-sensitive. So the, the film, even though it looks back over these six decades, really, uh, I think, challenges us. You know, my uncle John F. Kennedy challenged us to get to the moon, and I think the challenge of this film is to protect this Earth that we have been so luckily given
0: yeah you know we have had uh, uh several uh, astronauts here on the program uh, and it has been fascinating that they have this this wonderful theme of the perspective that it seems they are overcome with at the opportunity when they when they've been out in space looking back on the earth and they 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 all seem to come back with the passion not so much as much for space as much as it is for the Earth. And I think that was really conveyed uh, in your program. Uh, there's one other thing that I would encourage people to, to note in, in seeing that, and that is uh, your documentary of NASA is fascinating, I found, in talking about the fluorocarbon, uh, uh, fluoro, I'm saying it wrong, with the fluorocarbon uh, crisis with the ozone layer and how rapidly that was confronted and changed and how we've actually seen that. It's not just a kind of gloom and doom of the future and what we're heading up against with global warming, but an example of how human beings can and worldwide can recognize something and actually be successful at it.
1: Yeah. I think it's a, a it's a really good example. And and you know we can do it now. We can and and that the other thing that I think is striking about that example is that corporations helped take the lead on doing the right thing and they understood that it was in their interest to to make good choices there Mm -hmm. um and i think that you know similarly right now we need you know everybody we need our policymakers. we need our corporations we need all of us as individuals to to make smart choices to protect our planet for our children and our children's children and All the life out there that uh we want to continue to support
0: yeah so um obviously we're here tonight to in in most part to to talk about downfall uh and the case against boeing and, and this amazing documentary tell me how this started for you what got you onto this particular story
1: yeah well i like so many other people you know read about um the 737 max crash the a uh, Lion Air crash um, and, and my heart went out to the people on that aircraft. Um, and then I was really struck that five months later, the same, the exact same kind of plane, new to the market, a 737 Max, again, crashed um, uh, in Ethiopia. Um, and they were both Boeing airplanes. And then I was curious, um with boeing's response to both of those airplane crashes because rather than responding by saying oh my god this is horrific let's ground these planes immediately let's find out what happened we want to make sure everybody's safe apologies instead there was kind of a a a, a, a blaming of the pilot um, in these international territories not in the United States, um, in Jakarta, and in Ethiopia, and it seemed very suspicious and questionable to me. Um, so I felt like I wanted to make I wanted to make a documentary about it to really find out exactly what happened, who knew what when, who was responsible for these planes crashing, and figuring out what we could learn from it so something like this didn't happen again
0: and this was a story I did, uh that was uh largely i think run down uh and and kind of that in the scent by some some very key reporters uh early on that were digging into this as this kind of almost sub was happening uh, tell me a little bit about that because you 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 brought these uh these folks into the uh, documentary
1: yeah i mean the the documentary is really you know it was the story was still unfolding as we were making the documentary so the the way the story is told in the documentary is almost in real time and and you kind of see it unfold and then we have an opportunity to then look back and understand what the implications of all the choices were um what, uh, that were made at the time um we really focused on the voices of people who were on the front lines of this. So it was a combination of reporters, primarily Andy Pastor, um, who, who covered this story, dogged reporter for the Wall, Wall Street Journal, um, really amazing man, and um, Peter DeFazio was the congressional leader of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee that led the biggest investigation in that committee's history to try to get to the bottom of understanding what exactly had happened. Um, we follow his story. Um, and then, you know, remarkably, many of the family members who are, you know, faced with just such sadness and devastation were somehow able to turn that pain and suffering um, into this extraordinary advocacy effort. Um, And I think they were really driven by a feeling of wanting no other family to ever experience or go through the horror of what they had to endure. Um, And so we also follow Michael Stumo, Whose, whose daughter had died on the Ethiopian airplane and, and really became a, um, a, a spokesperson and an advocate. Um, and then on top of that, we interview a number of people who work at Boeing, who helped build these planes, who were behind the scenes, who um, really understood from the inside out what had happened um so it, it's it's very much a firsthand account of the events and and understanding I think more deeply what exactly happened
0: yeah I, it you know uh, in the documentary, you follow or spend a fair amount of time with, for example, the wife of one of the pilots of the aircraft for the human story on that um, in addition to it, then there's uh, the aspect of uh, like you said, people at Boeing going through it, the congressional side of it, and and investigators. Um, so you were doing this in in basically as this story. This was a this was a very long process. What's it What's it like to create a documentary when you're really not sure of the end? I mean, often it seems like many of your documentaries you're looking back in time, and mm-hmm. it's you can kind of plan your story. But in this case, you were following along. How did you choose? kind of what you were going to follow and how you were going to develop it?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was on the fly. I mean, we had, you know, a sense of kind of where we were going with the film, but a lot of it was was meeting people, talking to them, understanding, you know, where the story kind of pulled us um, in the making of it. Um, it was a complicated story. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not an airline pilot. I'm a documentary filmmaker. So, you know, you really had to kind of understand a number of uh, structural concepts of how the plane was built and why it was built and, you know, what the MCAS system was and how, how it, um, impacted the flight and really get to the bottom of that. And, you know, deeply understand it ourselves so that we could then, turn it into a story that would be more broadly accessible um and that was that was important to us you know this was a film that we made in partnership with netflix um netflix is in 190 countries all you know um and so you know we wanted to tell a story that People from many different backgrounds and uh, different, you know, language background, different experience background would be able to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in order to do that, you know, it, it required kind of a, a deep dive for our creative team. Um, but I was lucky; we had, you know, two really talented uh, writer producers on board, Kevin McAllister and Mark Bailey, and then our editor. Um, Don Clasey was, you know, just is, is uh, a great talent himself. So um, we had a really wonderful team that helped us tell this story.
0: Did you have any access uh, other than the former employees to, to any of the uh, executives or, or perspective directly from people at Boeing?
1: Well, we do include the uh, perspective through, you know, archive and through footage. We were in touch with Boeing throughout the process from when we first started the film, um, to the end, really, uh, encouraging them to participate. And, uh, they, at least in the beginning, seemed to entertain that possibility, but ultimately de- declined to do an interview.
0: Mm. And, and what how did you put together kind of who you were going to 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 bring on to get perspectives because there is clearly as the story goes on there there's input from uh, uh from people who were in meetings representing the pilots union for example in the in the united states and what they were getting back from boeing in terms of uh feedback on what to do during this. And that's, I think, was kind of fascinating. And then, of course, you did have access to people who were telling you the story of what had been going on behind the scenes with quality at Boeing, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I really wanted to get people who, who had firsthand accounts of what had happened. Um, and I wanted also to have a range of perspectives in the film um so i didn't want you know eight reporters telling me the same thing or you know five members of congress um so i really identified the people who i felt like could um who 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 knew the story intimately Mm -hmm. um who could help us deeply understand what happened at least for that part of the story um and had a first hand account um based on on their own personal experience so they're not talking about you know what they understood happened but what they saw happen mm-hmm. um, so so that was important to me in in the storytelling and then you know i think we used it, it we obviously used a lot of archive to help tell the story as well and and go into you know give some larger context to understand the history of boeing in this country and and you know like i love boeing uh, what it's has stood for historically i mean you talk about nasa boeing helped build the planes that are the, the rockets that got us to the moon right i mean mm-hmm. they're um they they built the 747 that really enabled people to travel internationally at a much lower cost and much greater numbers um you know they've they've been enormously had enormous ingenuity and uh, real commitment to excellence over the years and i wanted to celebrate that in this film um right. but it also you know we also come to understand that Particularly, you know, there were some events over the you know, last 20, 30 years: the merger with McDonnell Douglas, the move to from Seattle for the headquarters to Chicago. Um, you know that all were in line with with a uh, kind of overall um, shift away from excellence and towards earnings and right. uh, finances. I- how
0: do you how do you answer having been through and de- deeply into this the the biggest uh the biggest issue i think or the biggest continuing controversy about the uh, 737 max crisis is revolve well revolves around united u.s pilots and training versus internationally it's boeing's original line that this was a training issue that this you know was sure there was a technical issue to be solved but the difference between crisis and and the the accidents themselves versus something that wouldn't have been as much of a crisis or caused these deaths that was about pilot training this seems to be something that's that stayed in the public consciousness um where where does that how do you reconcile that what do we where does that stand
1: um well i think that Pilot training um, and wanting to avoid pilot training was a significant motivating factor as to why Boeing made a series of decisions that led directly to these crashes. I think it was really um, the cost, the direct costs associated with pilot training, in addition to the time that it takes pilots out of aircrafts, um, and and you know the time, the additional time that it would take to get these planes to the market uh, was a driving factor in in many choices that mm-hmm. that Boeing ultimately made. You know, from early choices to not to hide the existence of the MCAS system from the FAA, um, and we have. Documentations in in the film that you know shows that memo from as early as 2013, um, an internal memo from Boeing that makes it very clear that they were hiding that the existence of the MCAS system and the reason that they were hiding that MCAS system, which is also documented in these memos, was because they wanted to avoid pilot training. There was Mm -hmm. uh, under no circumstances were they going to allow for pilot training? It was just going to cost them too much. Of course, it's cost them much more, having not had the pilot training and having had right. these crashes. But um, so yes, that I think was um, a, a very significant factor.
0: Mm-hmm. There there seems to be, uh, you know, there's many factors I think that have come up uh, about this the story in general. And, uh, there's the whole focus of course, on what happened directly at Boeing. There's also a piece of it with their airline customers that were demanding some of those things as well, uh, of not having a single type, uh, training and all of that. And then also the FAA, um, how do you feel about the FAA's role, uh, in it or about the, uh, the airline customers role in it in, in, Kind of causing the the story to kind of get to that point
1: yeah well i think that it's it's quite concerning the role of the faa i think that um you know the faa unfortunately um there's a lot of uh concern about a revolving door policy where you know Boeing employees become FAA officials and FAA officials and uh, turn and become Boeing employees. And um, so, having that kind of uh, distance and and inclusive um, incentive to regulate and to make sure that safety and safety precautions are put into place, um, I think uh, is… is in those types of dynamics, um, it can, and, and were compromised. I think also on top of that, there was a specific policy with Boeing on the ODA, I believe it's called where mm-hmm. Boeing was basically able to self-regulate with, I think it was some, something around 90% of, um, of the safety concerns. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, uh, kind of align it to the, the fox guarding the hen house, right? Um, that that Boeing was able to self-regulate and that the FAA really wasn't doing the job of regulating. Um, I think certainly also it was a significant contributing factor to mm-hmm. the fact that these this MCAS system, you know, this was a system that was put in this plane. They, they The... Boeing knew in 2016 and we have a, an internal memo that's quite shocking in the in the in the film that shows that Boeing knew that if there was a you know what a, a fault in the system, which of course can always happen that pilots needed to respond under 10 seconds or the plane would crash and there would be a catastrophic result which of course, i'm sure everybody on this in on watching the show knows means everybody on that plane is going to die so they knew that pilots needed to respond within 10 seconds and do a series of things that were correct and this is meanwhile when there's a cacophony of alerts going on in the cockpit that are um alerting you to different you know elements that some of which are faulty they're not actually wrong but you're trying to figure out which one is to pay attention to you don't do the exact right thing in those circumstances everybody in that plane is going to die boeing knew that and they still let that airplane up in the air mm-hmm. um and you know without the faa being aware of of what the potential consequence of this was. So, you know, it was um it was a, it was just a, a, a series of choices really driven by boeing and and profit that really directly led to these crashes.
0: I think that that's that's a, it's an important point that you brought up about that particular document because I think that was one of the most damning things that their internal analysis said that uh, from the onset of the failure you had, the pilot had 10 seconds in order to respond. I think that the missing kind of of piece that that really secures or or kind of assures a a bad outcome is that there was no training involved. There there was no awareness that said, hey, this is what, this, this can happen, and then you need to do this within 10 seconds. It's not that 10 seconds per se uh, in itself it is alarming enough as the fact that you're not even told what to do in that case. Um, well,
1: I mean, it's a number of factors, yes, 100%. I mean, you know, that, and in that same memo, it says without pilot training, then you're going to have these catastrophic consequences, right? And so that suggests that you should have pilot training, right? I mean, it was very clear in this memo that you need to have pilot training, and yet. Again, the decision was made not to have pilot training, but on top of all this, you know, on that first plane and up until that first crash, the pilots didn't even know the MCAS system was on the plane. Mm -hmm. And, And then when Boeing was asked, well, you can't have a system that can have catastrophic consequence without a backup system. Boeing responded by saying, well, we did have a backup system. And, and Congress said, well, what was your backup system? And they said, the pilots. <laughs> but the pilots didn't know the system was on the plane. I mean, it's, right. it's nonsensical it's, and they had no training. They had no knowledge of what to do with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane.
0: I know one of the uh, union representatives, uh, one of the pilots union representatives that's in the film, Talks about the documentation and training given to pilots and how there's one mention of the existence of the system at all, and it's it's in a glossary that simply has a definition. It's nowhere else. There's no understanding that it's existing and that you're fighting something like that. Um, yeah.
1: Well, that's I another. think that when there was the first, you know, announcement that um from boeing after you know the first airplane crash and they blamed the pilots and then they they sort of kind of buried this memo that well actually there was a default in the mcas system and i think the universal response from pilots was what the heck is this mcas system Mm -hmm. i mean nobody nobody knew what it was
0: right so is there any i mean i i you know we're stuck with that narrative i mentioned earlier where people still are back and forth on 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 any blame and it's it it seems that um had this had this failure happened the uh, almost coincidentally um to uh You know to an american uh uh, to a pilot of an american air carrier even if it didn't result in something catastrophic um that uh you've got, got to imagine there would be outrage without any dissent without any controversy at all uh even if it was recovered
1: yeah i think that many people felt like had this happened on american soil it would have been a very different response um and you know, Boeing's uh, reaction to blame the pilots, I think, wouldn't have been tolerated. Um, you know, and I think there was a backlash against that. But, you know, I mean, they in the second instance after it happened, you know, it had already happened with Lion Air, and then happened with Ethiopian Airlines, and they did it with Ethiopian Airlines, and you know the uh, people who know airlines know that ethiopian is a very well respected airlines who you know trains pilots and in fact ethiopia had one of the only if not the only and we have to fact check that but i think it was definitely one of the only um training systems um for the um, for the 737 maps mm-hmm. uh a virtual training mm-hmm. system so they were one of the few airlines who actually um, invested in in training their pilots on the seven thirty seven Max. In a uh,
0: Max specific simulator. Yeah, they mm-hmm. had a
1: simulator, um, and it, I think it was really one of the few in the world at the time. So, um, you know, they they are a very well respected airline, and um, and then the the Lion Air pilot was trained in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, they were all very well-respected <clears throat> pilots. So, um, and of course, we know now that it was not the pilot's error; it was the, it was the MCAS system. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's as pilots, uh, we are always trained that uh, every accident is made up of a chain of events, and that it only you only need to break one link in that chain. To avert the accident, to to avert the disaster, and it seems that in this case, and in your in this story, uh, no matter how you know you start focused focused in very close, like perhaps what happened specifically on the flight deck, and then you keep panning back out further and further to the the events of the corporation, the events you know further and further out maybe of the government and FAA. That there's there's not a no link was ever broken. Every single step along the way was something that made made this turn into what it did. And it's amazing to me how that's pointed out as you as you look at the documentary, you get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just becomes more and more inevitable of what was what was gonna happen here.
1: Yeah. I think when, when you put all the facts together, and, and I do think there's something, you know, we, even for people who follow this story, because it, it it happened and it sort of trickled out here and there over the course of two, two and a half years, there's something about condensing it into that 90-minute experience, and you see all the facts piled up one next to the next to the next and and broaden it out as you say from the very specific what happened in the cockpit you know looking back all the way through the history over the last 40 years um that you you kind of you know there's a there's a, a a compelling and quite convincing narrative um that is is pretty damning and yeah. In terms of being Boeing, so um, and the decisions they made and why they made them and and why they made each of those choices, and then you know of course it kind of makes you question any choices that they made over the last twenty years.
0: So uh, you know one of the aspects of that is, as you alluded to earlier, uh, McDonnell Douglas and what happened with the transition of management. That uh, that changed the culture there, and I found that to be very impactful. And I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit, because that seemed from a lot of people that were just dyed in the wool, passionate Boeing employees uh, that that felt that the company changed at that point or began a change that almost made something like this inevitable.
1: Yeah, well, you know. It was in the um, early 90s and uh, McDonald, I mean, what many people say is that McDonald Douglas bought Boeing with Boeing's money. McDonald Douglas had had a lot of financial issues. There had been you know, challenged with bankruptcy. There was concern that the McDonald Douglas wasn't gonna survive. And somehow they were able to to buy Boeing with Boeing's money, they became, you know, the, the the top leadership of McDonnell Douglas ended up very quickly, pretty immediately, running this new company. Um, so it was also curious as to how they got those uh, top positions, and they pretty quickly and over a period of time made a series of choices and decisions again. That seemed to be much more um, influenced by Wall Street and profits than in innovation and excellence. Um, you know, they had people running the company that weren't engineers; they were Wall Street guys, um, and they were interested in in making money. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the the folks who were responsible for safety were let go or, um, devalued, um, they, uh, let go of a lot of employees overall, um, and, you know, one of the guys who, who worked there said they were, they were, they started running the company like they were making you know dishwashers i mean it was it wasn't um it wasn't visionary in the way that it had been there wasn't that commitment to let's make sure we know where every nut and bolt is and how this plane is built and you know go through all the safety precautions um there was a sense of let's get this plane to market as quickly as possible and make as much money as possible
0: was there was there any aspect in in the research and, and at kind of the different people that you interviewed when you were going through this? Were there were there different perspectives that you had to reconcile here or was it just a kind of a unanimous story of how things happened? Since again, it seems like there's a little bit of blame to go around with whether it be again agencies, FAA customer side pressuring and saying the aircraft had to be like this. Of um, meaning the airlines training, uh, all sorts of other aspects.
1: I mean it was a pretty um, it was a pretty kind of ironclad narrative. Uh, um, and, and you know the, the folks we interviewed had a pretty consistent read of things that, you know was in line with what the conclusions were of the congressional investigation, that this was a culture of concealment. Um, that it was, you know, driven by Wall Street. Um, decisions were di- driven by Wall Street, and uh, that, you know, that led directly to the crash. The crashes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that conclusion was um, very much in line with kind of where we ended up with the film, and uh, is in- consistent with andy pastor the pilots we interviewed the people who work at boeing family members um we didn't seek out people who had the same narrative we we were finding people who knew this story most intimately mm-hmm. and they all came to the same conclusion although they were looking at it from different um through different lenses or portals
0: right um Within Boeing, uh, to, you know, in order to make something like this happen, nothing's obviously universal. You know, you people, I think, are 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 ultimately good at their core. You're going to have a lot of people, um, a vast majority of people, working at a company trying and wanting to do the right thing. Did you did you find that um, that the the, 730 max, the 737 Max story it really had this kind of separate group or almost like there were certain people trying to hide the information trying to keep people out of the loop who naturally their job would be safety their job would be training their job would be some of these things it's not kind of a universal boeing trying to accomplish this story
1: um you know i i found um i interviewed a number of people who worked with bentwing for many decades and were there before mcdonald douglas merger um and you know there, there it was it was i mean there's so many deeply sad aspects to this story deeply um but one of them was these employees who had given so much to this company and to hear from them you know to, and to witness because you're reading these articles that are documenting how the company is changing and how the culture is changing and how the people you know the profile of the people who are working there is changing so it's all it's like all these corporate people but you know it used to be all people who who had engineering and you know were pilots and like had that kind of background and and you know to to hear that from the people who worked inside of Boeing, who describe it from the inside, and that you know, like you just you were at this amazing company. you were so proud to wear, you know, the the hats and the the team wear, and it just had this great vibe. And you were building these amazing machines that nobody had ever seen before. And then it like all changed in one day. It's like mm-hmm. McDonald's I guess, took over, and like the next day. It's just a totally different vibe, and there's yep. a totally different set of parameters and rules. And you know, people are getting fired, and priorities are changed. And you're like, you know, it's it's sad to yeah. see people who've committed their life and wanting, you know, and the the, the sense of pride that we all have, so many of us have in the work that we do. Um, so I think that was that was kind of a dominating feeling, and then you know, of course, there were people who were working there who were aware of what was going on, and and so, um, that's you know, part of. I mean, that's the Dennis Mullenbergs and the people running the company, and um, and others who were working under him, um, who who stepped into line with his vision, and you know, of course, Dennis Mullenberg. Um, despite having led the company during you know through these many decisions um was there when both of the airplanes crashed you know he he was asked to leave by the board and he walked away with 62 million dollars in compensation um wow. so you know it's very hard to reconcile that to have a, you know you're watching the story. You understand what happened, what they did, and not only has nobody served any prison time, despite you know 346 lives being lost, um, and and people being killed, um, that you know the head of the company walks away with 62 million dollars.
0: Yeah. Well, again, you know, it seems that it it you it takes almost a dedicated relatively small number of people in order to make these types of decisions and this type of a of a situation happen because you know certainly the people who are training in simulators the people who are writing manuals for boeing the people who are test flying the aircraft it takes it's these are by and large are, are not people that are ready to sign on to something to hide the truth and put people's lives at risk, it it takes a it takes a, a I use the term dedicated group of small a small group of people to conceal something like this. Yeah, and and I, I think mean, the so look,
1: I I do think there were cases where there were people we talked to who were doing very narrow assignments and only later understood that. What they were doing were contributing to you know this this system and um, uh, an airplane that was ultimately unsafe. So I do think that in certain cases they were um there were there was awareness and certainly you know, very high up there was. but I do think there were other people who worked on the plane who didn't really understand and weren't seeing the big picture and right. didn't really understand how the decisions they were making ultimately could contribute to these crashes well it seems
0: to me like that is essentially the seed or the essence of what causes that entire accident chain it starts with the perhaps it starts with the need to design the aircraft to be similar perhaps it does, starts with the customer it starts with all of those things but the to me the step into the wrong direction is when someone makes that decision to hide a system and to hide information, because once you hide the information, all the different departments and all the different people that make decisions uh, based on that information ultimately can make the wrong decisions right. uh, without having it. They do their best job possible, but if they well, don't, it's know- very
1: concerning. And you know, there was. I mean. I'll I'll tell you one other thing that I I thought was probably the most shocking thing that I came across and and is documented in the film, which was the Tarim report. Um, The Tarim report came out after the first crash, the, the Lion Air crash, before the Ethiopian crash. And it was done by boeing Boeing, well by the faa and boeing was made aware of it and it concluded that there was a likelihood that the plane would crash 15 times over the course of its life um and that would be on average once every two years that there would be a catastrophic crash and boeing along with the faa had that terror report. They did not make it public. And they made the decision to keep that airplane in the sky in hopes that they could make a fix before the plane crashed again. So they basically were betting people's lives because they didn't want to incur the cost of grounding it and fixing it. They decided to keep it up in the air to fix it before they fixed it. Mm -hmm. And um, knowing that risk, knowing that it had such a high chance of killing so many people. And I think when you're sitting across from Michael Stumo, whose daughter was on that second plane, and you then know that Boone knew this, and the FAA knew this, and you know, you put your daughter on that plane believing that the airlines, the, the the manufacturer, the Congress, like everybody's gonna do their job to protect us when we go up in those airplanes. And that basically nobody did. Um, and as a result, his daughter's no longer with him, 22 year old, you know, Samuel Rose, beautiful, committed woman who, uh, really wonderful you know life that's now lost you know it's just it's wrenching
0: Mm -hmm. what do you think the the impact i mean what has been what is what's what's coming out of this that's going to change things in the future i mean we've certainly seen the faa themselves uh having a different approach um and you know, some some would question how much of it is is going to be reactionary. How much of it really solves things? But what do you think the lesson is for all of us, and what do you think is going to change in, in kind of the corporate culture?
1: Well, I think that we have to. I mean, I and you know, unfortunately, it's this isn't the story only about Boeing, right? I mean, we've seen the same story play itself out and. The pharmaceutical industry, we've seen it play itself out in cars, car manufacturers. We've seen it play itself out in, you know, yes. fossil fuel energy producing corporations. Um, and so I think that we, as citizens and as pilots and as you know people who care that we have to continue to stand up against corporate interests and make sure that the public interest is considered and is a priority um and i think that we can't let our guard down or Mm -hmm. can't just assume well they're going to all look out for us and it's in their interest that you know this product is safe um Because it's just, there's too many examples where that's not been the case. So I think that we we need to be rigorous and, and keep at it, you know. And, yeah. I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker, so I'm making a documentary. And, you know, Andy Pastor is a reporter, and he chased the story down. And Pete DeFazio is you know, a congressperson and he decided to prioritize this. And Michael Stumo is a dad who works, you know, in another kind of company and he's committed so much of his time to this. So everybody can go about it. You know, other people can get on Twitter and other people can when you go into work and you're a pilot, you know, keep keep making those demands. And yeah. um I think that's that's what we have
0: to do. I think one of the, the, the challenges that, that we have in general is a lot of these things, and what the film obviously points out, is what can happen at high levels of power when you have high levels of power with corporations, when you have high levels of power with government that compromise safety or that, that, uh, that, co- that have other decisions made that aren't necessarily in everyone's interest. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that uh, I have personally heard from many small manufacturers and even one-person businesses throughout aviation in our world, which is kind of small aviation, general aviation, is the reaction to the Boeing 737 MAX uh, situation has been that it's easy to come down hard on the little guys everywhere, that the FAA is now kind of reluctant to sign off dragging on everybody who has small projects and little companies that aren't trying to hide anything power itself at the highest levels as what you point out in the film. That was where you really start to get the problems, but it's easy to punish the little guy too.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that you saw that, you know, play itself out even with the the Boeing story itself where they, you know, the focus has been on, on Mark, Forkner, um, you know, and and not saying that Mark isn't isn't you know he he made some choices that weren't great, but you know it's much bigger than Mark Forkner. Like mm-hmm. right. the story isn't about Mark Forkner. You know, Mark Forkner was he was a, he was a you know training pilot. I mean, he wasn't. He didn't put this system, he didn't build the system, he didn't put the system in the plane he didn't you know he helped hide the system, so that wasn't i mean, that wasn't great, and he shouldn't have done that, but you know that's that is not where the story should end up. Mm-hmm. that's not who's responsible right so you know, but who's going after the Dennis Mullenbergs? who's going you know why why can you kill? 346 people and have a corporation and that that protects you like why so if you're in a corporation that you can just do whatever you want like why aren't they held to the same account and 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 systems that we are as individuals
0: right well, I think ultimately that's the message of the film, and I think uh, I, I would certainly encourage anyone who hasn't already seen it downfall the case against Boeing to uh, to see it, to make judgments for yourselves, to research more about the story because it, it's it's a story that needs to be told so that we don't have other similar things. And as you mentioned, it's a similar story to what's happened in pharma and 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 some other areas. And so I appreciate very much that. Uh, you've taken the time to make the film um, and and the other work what tell me what's uh, what's next for Rory Kennedy what are you working on next
1: oh thank you Jeff. Um, well I have another documentary that I'm making for for Netflix right now but it hasn't it hasn't quite been announced um, so that's about a natural disaster um, and then I'm doing a film about the global refugee crisis mm. um, as well so that's that's in the works and uh have a couple other projects that are starting off but um, looking forward to sharing them when they come out
0: absolutely well rory kennedy thank you so so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on social flight live it's a it's a really uh, a wonderful show and um a, and as again i would encourage people don't stop just at uh downfall but also uh, take a look at the uh, the NASA film and, and the Vietnam film and so many other works that you have done. And I really appreciate you joining us here on Social Fly Live.
1: All right. Great to be here with you, Jeff. You take care.
0: Thank you. And to all of you, thank you again for taking time to join us here out of your evening to support general aviation and get another perspective here on Social Flight Live. Next week, we will be back on Tuesday, May 24th, 8 p.m., for a very special show with artist David Ewell. If you have not seen David Ewell's amazing paintings of, uh, of Uh, He has both watercolor and and work on canvas with oils, on motorcycles, on aircraft, and the combination of the two. They are breathtaking works of art, and uh, I'd encourage you to take a look at Yule Studios. Before you come to join us here on the show, because this is really going to be special. And uh, his story is absolutely fascinating. In addition to that, on Tuesday, May 31st at 8 p.m., NASA astronaut and award-winning photographer Jay Apt will be joining us. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for joining us again here on Social Flight Live and wish you all blue skies.